been. You guys remember the story in the Old Testament of one famous prophet named Elisha. One of my favorite stories of the prophet of Elisha is uh, when he is in Israel and the Arameans, who are enemies with the people of Israel, are seeking to attack the Israelites, take out, you know, going after their king and trying to take, trying to conquer them. And the king of the Arameans, you know, says, hey, you guys, I want you to go over here and attack this city. And Elisha, being a prophet of the Lord, God tells Elisha, hey, the Arameans are going to come over and attack this city. And so Elisha goes, sends a message to the king of Israel, hey, don't send your soldiers over there. Don't go over there. This is where the Arameans are going to go. And of course, the Arameans show up and there's no one really there. There's no one to attack. And they get rather frustrated. This happens multiple times. Finally, the Arameans are getting really, really frustrated. And they say, how in the world do we know? How, does that, how do they know where we're going every time? And they think, maybe there's a spy. Maybe it's one And the king of the Arameans, you know, looks at his servants and his advisors and the generals say, well, who's, who here is, you know, working for the Israelites? Who here is leaking our plans? We've got to find the leaker. And one of the people says, you know, hey, maybe out of self-preservation and correctly, it's not us. Haven't you heard that there's this prophet of the Lord named Elisha? And he knows everything that God shows him. And I bet it's him that's telling the Israelites where we're going to attack next. So the Arameans say, you know what? What's the only solution? We've got to take this guy out. You know, he's like intelligence for the enemy. We've got to take him out. So they find out where he is in Dothan and they, Dothan, and they go to get him. And this is kind of where the story gets interesting because Elisha's there in the city. And all of a sudden, his servant comes to him and says, Elisha, prophet of the Lord, the entire city is surrounded by the enemy, the soldiers of the Arameans. He's rightfully a little scared. Elisha, though, is totally unperturbed. Elisha's like, okay, so what? <laughs> Service said, don't you get it, Elisha? They're going to come and kill us all here. And Elisha says, if you knew what I knew, I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Elisha says, if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't be this afraid. He says, because there is a greater army out there that you can't see. And he prays to the Lord. and He says, open the eyes of my servants. And it says, the servant looked and all around the city and around the army was an an innumerable army of angels surrounding the armies of the Arameans. The servant realizes that's a little different perspective. <laughs> that changes things. And uh, Elisha, I, I do love, you got to find some humor in the Bible. I, Elisha's, you know, prays and asks God to, to take out the Arameans. And what does God do? He blinds them. They cannot even see. It's, it's funny, the army's there, but the angels don't even have to do anything. <laughs> they're there, but like, hey, we don't even need you. God's got this. He blinds the Arameans, and the Arameans are stumbling around, and Elisha says, hey, he goes out to the Arameans and says, hey, guys, uh, can I help you? <laughs> Who are you looking for? He says, oh, we're looking for Elisha. He says, okay, hey, let me go show you where he is. And he leads all of the army of the Arameans right into the center of the, the capital of Israel. And God opens their eyes and they realize they're in the middle of the capital of the Israelites. And so they're taken capture. They're captured and eventually they're let go. But I think about that servant of Elisha. It's not even named. He's just called the servant of the prophet. He needed a perspective shift. His, he was gripped by fear because of what he saw. But when he could see what he could not see before, the reality of God's protection and presence of, with his army of angels all around the city, he was no longer afraid. 
and he could trust in God. And this story today is in the Bible, which is a true story. I say story. I don't mean a fictional story, a real story. But it's a story that God tells in Genesis chapter 13 is all about perspective. It's about two contrasting people who have two different perspectives, which lead to two different types of actions, which lead to two different outcomes. Let's look at chapter 13. I always say that, but then I say, but wait. Uh, remember where we have been before. All the way at the beginning of Genesis, you've got Adam and Eve. From the beginning, God works, you know, they gives them the garden, they sin, there's a fall. God gives them a promise. And eventually, the focus of Genesis expands to the whole world. All of mankind is sinful, so what does God do? He sends a flood, and he says, I'm going to come down and work with Noah, specifically, and his family. And from there, Noah begins to repopulate the earth, and eventually, he brings down to Shem's family, and eventually down to Terah's family, and eventually down to Abram's family. God is kind of narrowing his focus of who he is working with and how he is going to accomplish his promises. All the way back from the beginning of Adam and Eve, after their sin, he says, I will send a seed who will crush the serpent. And God is continually building and building and building upon these promises. And we get to chapter 12, and that is the beginning of God's relationship with Abram. Abram did not know God as far as we know before this, besides maybe vaguely, like a lot of people did at the time. And God says, Abram, get up out of your city and out of your country and follow me to a land that I will show you. And Abram says, okay. <laughs> and in faith, he follows God and begins this relationship with this God who's revealing himself to Abram. And God gives him promises. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And through you, all of the world will be blessed. And then he says, I will give you this land to your descendants. And I will expand you and make you a great people. Well, we saw in the second half of chapter 12 last week that that was great start, but right away, Abram does not demonstrate faith in God. And yet God is still faithful to him. Abram goes down to Egypt. He lies about Sarah being his wife and makes a big royal mess of things. And yet God rescues Sarah, Sarai and Abram out of Egypt, despite his failure, because God is faithful to his promise. So this relationship has had some highs at the beginning, already some lows, and here we come to chapter 13. We read these verses last year, week, but I'll continue here in verse 1. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar, which he had made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also went with Abram and flocks, and herds, and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites also then dwelt in the land. So what's the setup of the story, beginning of the story? There's conflict. Lot is Abram's nephew. He has come with him all the way from Ur to Haran, all the way down to Canaan. And Abram has increased his wealth and has all this property and herds. And, you know, back then, how, what was your wealth in? It was in cattle, sheep, goats, that kind of thing. Well, what does that take? It takes a lot of land. It takes a lot of water. It takes a lot of food. And Lot also has become wealthy by following Abraham and being with him. And pretty soon, things are not going well. There is strife between Abram's and Lot's, Lot's herdsmen the ones keeping their flocks. And what is, what's just at the root here? They did not have enough resources to go around. There was not enough water. 
Remember, this land of Canaan is not always the most watered, relies heavily on wells and rain. There were no big rivers in the, in the land besides the Jordan River. And so there's not enough water. They were too wealthy for their own good, which, you know, isn't a problem we, we wish we all had. Man, I'm just so wealthy, I just can't help it, you know, causing problems. But that's what's going on here. They don't have enough to go around. Pretty simple, straightforward com- conflict. Also, look at the end there in chapter 7. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwell in the land. There were these other people groups that were living there, and there was not enough to go around. So, what happens? Well, verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Let's consider, okay? What would we expect from Abram in his culture, in his day, in his situation, in this context? There's a problem. Remember, who is Abram to Lot? Lot is Abram's nephew. First off, right there, Abram has some priority. Second of all, Abram is obviously older, Okay? In that culture, especially, that gave you greater priority, especially. Remember, how did Lot even get here? He came with Abram, right? Lot's like the guest here. Abram's like, I'm going on a journey, and Lot says, okay, I'll come with you. Thirdly, Abram is, has more wealth. Lot is not as wealthy as Abram. And in, in, in our day and age, we could recognize, okay, Abram had a priority here, right? Uh, if anybody's the oldest sibling in the family, you know how this goes. You always get first choice, everything. Uh, at least that's what you think should happen. But in that day and age, Abram, remember, they had come all the way from their family, left their land. Who is the head of this entire clan? Abram. And remember, there, was no, there were no kind of countries like we have. There was no like city government. You know, there wasn't like a Canaanite council, commerce council. You, know? you kind of made what you thought was right and did what you thought was right. And Abram is the one in this group they had hundreds of people with them, as we'll see later in the story, hundreds of people that dwelt with them and traveled with them, and Abram is in charge of all of that. So you'd expect Abram to say something like, hey, Lot, go over there. <laughs> Abram, deci- Abram, we'd expect him to decide, I want to go here. Lot, you got to figure it out somewhere else. Yet that is not what Abram does. Abram graciously offers Lot the choice of land. Now, Lot is kind of uh, infamous for being foolish, as we'll see later on. So we look at, what are you doing, Abram? Abram, what are you doing? But we can see a difference here between the last story of Abram and this one. The last story in the conflict, Abram lies and manipulates to try to get the right outcome. And yet here, what does he do? He simply says, Lot, for the sake of peace, because we're brethren, we're family, you choose. And very specifically, look, he says, is not the whole land before you? Abram says, all of it. Doesn't matter. You can choose anywhere. And you can pick anywhere. And if you go left, I'm going to go right. And if you go right, I'll go left. Abram's basically saying, you get to choose. Now, remember, we have to remember, what did God promise Abram just a little bit ago, chapter 12? That he and his descendants would inherit all of this land. And yet Abram says, that's okay, Lot. You can have this land right here that I'm promised if you want it. Abram demonstrates great faith here. Abram trusted that God would direct and provide for him. Abram deserved to choose as the older and more wealthy, 
but he gave up his own right of choice for the sake of peace, for the sake of Lot. Abram might even have risked losing the land of promise because he's told Lot, if you choose this land, I will leave. But he did that because he trusted that he trusted God. He was not concerned with missing out on or being defrauded from God's promise. In reality, faith trusts God to accomplish his will and protect one's own good. Faith sacrifices its own rights and desires to honor God for the good of others. Faith doesn't demand its own way, but rather follows the will of God, even if it means sacrifice. So first we see Abram, he trusts God. We see later, who's the one that's going to accomplish these promises? Abram? No. In fact, what did we learn last week? Abram could not fulfill these promises. It had to be God. And Abram demonstrates faith by saying, God is the one who's going to have to take care of this. I am not the one who will make this happen. He sacrificed his own rights and desires to honor God and for the good of others. We look at Abram and humanly we kind of say, wow, Abram, that's a foolish decision. Lot's younger. He's not as important. We know Lot's kind of foolish. We know Lot doesn't make good choices. Look what's going to happen to him later in the story. Why are you letting Lot, of all people, choose? Abram trusts God and says, I will sacrifice even what is rightfully mine, what God has promised to me for the good of Lot and for the sake of peace. And faith doesn't demand its own way, but rather follows the will of God, even if it means sacrifice. Abram recognized in this story, he was not in control. (laughs) In chapter 12, that's not the same Abram. In chapter 12, Abram's like, I got to make this happen because if if I don't do it, it's going to go poorly. But here in this story, he almost seems passive. Abram seems almost fatalistic, like, well, I'm just going to let happen whatever happens. And we know that that's not the case with Abram. We'll see next chapter. But Abraham demonstrates an implicit trust in God of saying, Lot, you decide. And isn't this the story of the Bible? Of a great, humble sacrifice of faith? Who is the greatest example of one who gave up his own rights, what he deserved for the sake of others to honor God? Well, it's Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of this principle. Who deserved better than Jesus? Who demanded less than Christ? Who sacrificed more of his own rights than Jesus to honor God and to serve others? We might look at Lot and say, what? was that really worth it, Abram? We know what's going to happen. If you read the story, if you haven't, go read it. Lot's story does not end well. Is this really worth it, Abram, to, throw, to sacrifice it all for that guy? But that's the attitude that Christ has for us even while we were yet sinners. What does Mark 10, 45 say? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember, what had Jesus been promised from the foundation of the world? 
kingship over the entire world. And yet, what does he not, what did he not demand in his earthly ministry? To be the king. He allowed himself to be a servant and said, I will serve others. I will wash feet. I will even suffer and die for the sake of others. And that takes faith. And this is the obedience that brought us salvation. This is the obedience that we rely on. This is the ultimate example of faith that Jesus calls us to follow. What did Jesus tell his disciples? Take up your cross and follow me, follow Jesus. The follower of Jesus is one who sacrifices his own good to honor God and for the good of others. The follower of Jesus, the Christian, the man or woman of faith, is one who suffers now trusting in God's provision and future glorification. Isn't this the story of Jesus? He goes from glory to humiliation to sacrifice, but eventually he allows and trusts the Father to exalt him in due time. And what does Abram do in this story? In a very simple, small way, he says, I am going to humble myself now because I know God's promise of inheritance and glorification and exaltation is coming in the future. But that's not mine to grasp. It's God's to accomplish. This is Abram's faith-filled offer. Okay, so what does Lot do with this great offer? Fortunately, not that great stuff. Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, the Jordan River, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east and they separated from one another. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Lot lifts his eyes and what does he see? What does he look at? Wow, that land is beautiful. Now remember, you have to understand the geography here. The land of Canaan, the land of Israel, again, is very dependent on wells and rain. A lot like here in Arizona. So it's not quite as dry here. Right? Do you go out and you see a lot of rivers around here in Arizona just naturally? Uh, we drove through, uh, you know, I was driving uh, back from, Can- or no, yeah, from the van yesterday. I was with Jeremiah, and we, we passed over the Agua Fria River, right, there in Surprise. And it's free of Agua for sure. But I also look at that and say, I, every time I drive over it, I say, who, decide, who named this river the, the Cold Water River? Like, what, what are we doing here? Okay, but you know in Arizona, there's no rivers. If you're going to grow something, it takes a well or it takes rain. Very much like Israel. If there was a river in the region, and it's the Jordan River. And if you go down to the the valley that follows the Jordan River, it's very fertile. It's kind of the boundary of Israel. On the east side is the other countries. On the west side becomes eventually Israel. And Lot looks down at that river and he says, wow, that's beautiful. And not just beautiful, but that's an opportunity. It's fertile. It can grow stuff. We can increase our herds and our flocks. We don't have to worry about digging wells, go running all over looking for water. It's right there. We can increase and be. We can increase our wealth and grow there in that river. It even says, kind of almost uh, over the top, right? It's like it's like the garden of the Lord, the Garden of Eden. That's how that's how Lot looks at it. It's so beautiful. It's like the Garden of Eden, and like the land of Egypt. Now you're like, okay, well, I don't think of Egypt as particularly like, you know, fertile. I think of it as a desert. But remember to them, 
What was in Egypt? The Nile. Why was the Nile such a big deal? Because you had water all year long. Anytime you needed water, there was water for you. This is why, if you ever notice in the Bible, how many times there's a famine, where do they always go? Because Egypt didn't have to deal with a drought. If it didn't rain, well, Egypt, we still got a river. It's like, it's so great, it's so beautiful. It's like the Garden of Eden or the land of Egypt. And Lot says, that's where I want to go. But what does the narrator include? He pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Sodom, you don't have to live close to it. If you look at the map, there's a big, very big valley there. The river goes a long way. Yet what does Lot do? He doesn't just go to the valley. He goes even closer and closer to the city of Sodom. And the narrator notes, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Lot made his choice based on earthly wisdom. It made perfect sense to choose that land. We might look at Lot and say, well, you dummy. But we would probably do the same thing. It actually is the logical choice. Go to the place that's fertile, that has water, that can grow, that you don't have to worry about things. This is a great place to live. And But Lot, in going there, integrated himself into the city of wickedness in order to gain this earthly success. Lot saw the wickedness of Sodom, but the beauty and wealth of the land overwhelmed everything. Lot's eyes were fixed on earthly blessings. This is what drove his decisions. Lot did not act out of faith, but out of the flesh. Lot lifts up his eyes, and what does he see? He doesn't see the wickedness of Sodom. He doesn't see what God would want. He just sees this beautiful land, and he goes to it. The wisdom of the flesh we see here with Lot prioritizes one's own goals and desires. What is Lot's primary, primary purpose here? To increase my own wealth. Abram increases, but he, he's like, hey, you, you go where you want. I'll go where I need to go. And if I decrease, that's okay. Lot is only concerned about finding what's going to increase his own wealth. The wisdom of the flesh fixates on earthly success. Lot had eyes for that land only. That's what he saw. That's what he lifts up his eyes to look at. And thirdly, it ignores the effects of sin. All of this to increase his, his wealth, which again, it's easy for us to condemn, but isn't that the natural tendency of all of our hearts? I mean, we live in one of the most wealthy countries in the world, in the history of the world. We naturally make choices based on what's going to maximize my return on investment, what's going to maximize my wealth, what's going to give me the most opportunities. That's what Lot does. He goes where it's most advantageous for him. And later on in Scripture, we see that the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, an early church father, John Chrysostom, said, A dreadful, a dreadful thing is the love of money. It disables, it disables both eyes and ears. Lot saw some stuff. But you know the only thing he noticed? The land. That was beautiful. The wisdom of the flesh sacrifices the spiritual for the earthly. And it sacrifices the eternal for the temporary. What did we see in chapter 12? The promises of God to Abram and on the land of Canaan. And yet Lot doesn't seem to care about that. He cares only about what he sees right now and what he can gain here on earth. Now, we know the end of the story. In the end, he loses everything because of that. 
And isn't this the same temptation that Satan used on Christ? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, in the, in the desert, Satan, it says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, Jesus, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. What's the essence of Satan's temptation to Jesus? Jesus, I know you have to go through the cross before you become the king of all the world at the end of time. But if you just worship me now, you can have all that right now. Sacrifice eternal kingdom and reigning and possession for now. All you have to do is worship me. And that's exactly what Lot does. He says, I'm going to sacrifice the future and eternal for the now and today. And Abram's response here in verses 14 through 18, actually I should say God's response, Abram's reward for his faith. Notice, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of Jordan and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And look at verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now. And look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward and westward for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth then your descendants could also be numbered arise walk in the land through its length and its width and I will give it to you then he removed his tent went in and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre which are in Hebron and built an altar there to the Lord Abram trusted God in allowing Lot to choose, and how does God react? By rewarding his faith with greater blessing and promise. Abraham gave up his own rights and earthly blessings because he trusted in God. He did not seek to prioritize or protect or gatekeep his own rights. He did not pursue his own desires. He kept his gaze on God and his promises. And notice where Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the land of Jordan, in the cities of Sodom, God tells Abram, lift up your eyes and see what God would provide. And what does Abram see? Everything. Lot's got this like tunnel vision. Like lifts up his eyes and he sees like that one spot. And God says, Abram, you look up and you look around. You look east, south, north, south, west. And not only that, but you travel around. Everything you see, I will give to you and your descendants. Lot relied on his own wisdom and actions to bring blessing, but Abram relied on God to provide. God promised Abram that his descendants would inherit all the land he could see and travel through. God promised Abram that his descendants would multiply more than the dust of the earth. Lot's narrow earthly vision would bring emptiness and destruction. His pursuit of earthly wealth would result in spiritual and earthly poverty. Not to spoil the story, but what happens to Lot later? Not only do you find him living in his tent near Sodom, eventually you find him living in the city of Sodom 15 or so years later. And because of the wickedness of that city, God comes to destroy it. And even Lot's own family won't leave with him. His wife looks back and is killed in judgment. His two daughters come with him. And they are so filled with the wickedness of Sodom that they despair of God providing a future for them, and they take advantage of their father. They get him drunk. They take advantage of him to father their own children. That's a, talk about a complicated family. 
And all of that happens because of Lot's narrow vision on what is important to him. This fertile, nice-looking land. Yet what did Abram do? Abram laid aside his ambitions for earthly self-produced success. Abram received spiritual wealth. What does he receive? Another encounter with God himself. And another promise from Yahweh. An eternal promise. And part of that promise is the guarantee of earthly physical blessings for his descendants. Lot receives nothing. He receives emptiness and destruction. Yet Abram gives up what is rightfully his, and what does he receive? Everything. So, as an aside, does this mean then that God will always reward our faith with blessings? That's one way we could go with this. Say, look at Abram. He had faith in God, and guess what happened? God gave him blessing and reward for his faith. Is prosperity, health, and success the inevitable reward of our faith? No, it's not. Notice that even for Abram, did God bless him physically? Did he give him more wealth? Yes. But what is the heart of this promise? The future blessing of innumerable descendants and their inheritance. How long was it before Abram would even see one child? At least 15 years from now in the story. Did Abram see his children become a great nation? No. Did Abram see his descendants inherit the land? That's not going to happen for another five to 600 years. And even then, the Israelites never fully conquered the land. That promise is still not even fully fulfilled yet. Because all the land that Abram sees and God promises, even under Solomon, the Israelites never controlled all that land. God does not grant an easy life. He doesn't promise earthly success and health and wealth to his followers, but God does bless us in our lives when we obey him. But the greatest blessings are in the future. Think about Jesus himself once again. Jesus perfectly had faith in God. Jesus perfectly obeyed God and his law. Jesus perfectly followed his father. Yet what did Jesus receive in reward for that? A life of suffering, a life of denial and rejection, a life of sacrifice. Now we know Christ is exalted back to the right hand of the Father and will return in exaltation and glorification. But even still today, that exaltation is not fully realized on earth. So we must not look at the way of faith as a way to get something right now. Rather, it is because it is worth pursuing God who promises future hope and blessing. The way of faith is the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. Suffering before glory, death before life, humility before exaltation. Are we servants greater than our master? Do we demand that which Jesus himself failed to receive? Easy life, lack of pain, answers for all our questions. Anyone who insinuates that true faith, all, that true faith always brings physical healing earthly wealth, and human success denies the gospel of Jesus. There are many out there who will preach and say that if you believe in God, if you have faith, God will give you everything you want. No, if you have faith, God will give you everything that he wants, which is greater than what you want. But it may mean you you don't get what you want right now. What did even Jesus say before the cross? If there was any way that this could pass from me, 
but not my will, but thine be done. Even Jesus sacrificed and suffered, and we follow him. The life of a Christian is a life of suffering, but it's a life of suffering that results in glory eventually, and suffering that means something. So let's compare our two characters in this story, Abram and Lot. Okay, Abram and Lot, what are some of the things they do? Well, Lot pursued earthly blessings. At the end of the story, where is Lot living? He's dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even towards Sodom. Remember, in that day, living in a city was a big deal. What did God tell Abram to do? To leave a city, to become a nomad. And Lot dwells in a city with security, with stability, with walls, with commerce, with trade, with earthly success. And Abram, he sought spiritual blessings. He sought the promises of God, and he sought peace with Lot. He gave up the right to earthly blessings, allowing Lot to make the choice. And he lived in his tent as a nomad. How many of you love camping? Love camping? Okay, good. I'm not a camper. How many of you would love to camp 24-7, 365 days a year? Oh, she would. Okay. You could have done great with Abram. I think most of us would say, you know what? At least I know my wife would. <laughs> I know my wife would say, hey, maybe we, that, was, that was fun, but I'm really happy to go back to my own house, you know, where I have my system and everything's in place and I can clean it. And we have like, you know, a cabinets and a bathroom. Abram is living his entire life as a nomad with no place to call his own home. We might look at that and say, wow, Abram, that doesn't sound that great. But what are the results of these two people? Lot, he dwelt also, though, with the wicked. Not only did he live in a city, sounds great, he integrated himself into the city of wickedness. He gained earthly blessings for a time, success, wealth, stability, but what does that result in? Eventually, he loses his entire family and everything he has. And if you read the rest of the story, as we mentioned earlier, it actually might have been better for him to have lost his entire family. Because not only does he lose everything and his wife, but then his own daughters turn and abuse him for their own gain. This is the result of Lot's choices. What about Abram? Well, Abram sought the spiritual blessings. He gave up his own rights, and he dwelt as a tent, in a tent, as a nomad. But what did he do? He worshiped God. You notice again, we ended last week's story. What happened at the end of last week's story? Abram builds an altar, and he calls the name of the Lord. What happens again at the end of this story? He builds an altar, and he worships God. He is close with God. He's living in a tent, but he has spiritual stability, spiritual blessing. And he received a promise for future eternal blessing. And lastly, received a promise for innumerable descendants. What happens to Lot's family? Lot's family implodes. And out of it comes uh, Moab. Later on, do the Moabites have problems with Israelites? <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, Lot's family brings only heartache, destruction, death, disorder. Interestingly, though, there was a famous Moabite in the Bible who God redeems to be a part of God's promised story, Ruth. 
It's almost like Ruth is the one who comes back and because of her faithfulness to God is bringing back Lot's family into the fold. Very cool story. But this is what Abram gets. He gives up his own rights and his own pursuit of earthly success, but yet what does he receive? A promise for eternal future blessing that no one can take away. And innumerable descendants. A great name. And really, who has greater success in the end? Lot or Abram? It's an easy question to answer. Obviously, Abram. Who receives greater, greater glory? Abram. Who ends up with greater wealth? Abram. Lot only saw the beauty and wealth of the world. Abram fixed his eyes on God and his promises. In doing so, he allowed God to lift his gaze to behold something far greater and better than Lot could ever see. Where we set our eyes is what we will treasure. And what we treasure, as Christ taught, is where our hearts will be. What we gaze upon longingly, you know, we spend all our time thinking about and looking at and saying, oh, that's my goal. That's where our hearts are, and that's what will possess us in the end. And if we're like Lot, if we set our eyes and our hearts on things of this life and on earthly, material success, material wealth, even things like a good family, it'll end up empty. It is only with the eyes of faith that we can lift our eyes and see God's greater promise for spiritual wealth. And, you know, God is gracious. He gives us good things. If you follow God, that doesn't mean you're going to be destitute. But it may mean we sacrifice things in this life from an earthly perspective because we gain something far greater. And so also we are tempted to bring our gaze down to this earth, to see only that which exists around us. The world demands our eyes and our attention. We may become fixated on this world and its priorities and purposes. What we set our eyes on becomes our whole world. Lot made his whole world Sodom, a city destined for destruction. Abram made his whole world God and God's promises, which still are existing today. But we are called to lift our gaze to something greater for the Christian today, to Christ himself in heaven. We must not set our heart on the things of this earth, but on a greater treasure. What did Jesus say? Set your heart, your treasure in heaven. What does Colossians 3, 1 through 2 say? If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. What does Hebrews 12 say? Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every way in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Those with eyes of faith look to the greater riches of God in Christ for eternity, eternal salvation, eternal hope, eternal life with God. They receive an eternal inheritance of glory, wealth, and blessing. If we set our eyes on Christ, if you set your eyes on him, if you repent of your sins, if you trust in Christ, you receive all of the blessings and inheritance of Jesus himself, the Son of God. 
Those with eyes of flesh only pursue the empty temporary riches of this life. They receive emptiness in this life and even in eternity. I'm reminded of the, well, to me, growing up in a pastor's home, the famous story, famous joke of, uh, you know, the rich guy just loved his cars, very rich, and he had all these cars in his, you know, garage. And his favorite one was the Rolls-Royce, you know, gold-plated everything. Spent his whole life collecting and gathering these cars in, and, and eventually he dies. And his last wish is, I want to be buried in my gold Rolls-Royce. So they put him in there, you know, lowering it down into the ground, into the hole. And his friends and those around look at him dead, sitting in this car, gold-plated, laying lowered to the ground, and they say, man, now that's living. <laughs> that does nothing for you. But that's what so many people live for today for stuff that will all be gone. What was Job's perspective when God took everything? Naked I came into this world, naked I will depart. Nothing, we, we didn't bring anything with us, we can't take anything with us. Only that which we receive in heaven will remain. If we pursue the riches of earth, we will receive emptiness in this life, and if that is all we pursue, emptiness in eternity, perhaps even worse, death punishment in hell. So where are our eyes fixed today? Are we living our lives guided by the vision of Jesus and his kingdom or the wealth and success of this life? And you know how we tell by what we do with our time, our skills and our talents, and our money and our, and our treasure. Where do we invest? Where do we spend our life? Look, you know me, if you know me and you know Pastor, you know we're not people who are going to make laws about how much you have to give to church and how much you can spend on other things. We recognize life is for living. That's what the Bible teaches. Life is a gift for God to live. Read Ecclesiastes. It's okay to spend, have fun. It's okay to have hobbies. It's okay to spend money. But as we, if we look at our lives as a whole, are we captivated by the things of this life? Where we recognize that they are passing away and temporary. Perhaps even those things which you enjoy, those hobbies, those passions, those things you love, are you using even those for eternal impact or just for selfish gain to make you feel good? Where is our treasure? Where is our faith? Where is our heart? If we think even more simplistically, if you are here today and you do not know Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not trusted in Christ for salvation and forgiveness, then you have no hope of pursuing an eternal blessing, an eternal inheritance, an eternal treasure. Jesus says in Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Following Jesus looks like great sacrifice. It looks like selling everything we have. And it looks like foolishness to the world. But it means, and it means following Jesus to poverty, to humiliation, and even death on a cross. It means giving up everything that is rightfully yours, but it means gaining a treasure hidden from others of eternal and infinite wealth, life with God, divine exaltation, eternal life with Christ. We Christians are like that man who knows there's a treasure hidden in that field, but nobody else knows, and we go and sell everything. People look at us and say, wow, what a, what a, Foolish man. 
but a dummy, okay? Sold everything to buy this random piece of ground, but we know there's a treasure hidden there. That's far greater than anything we sold. And that still can be you today if you do not know Christ. Naturally, because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of our sin, we all are born in sin and rebellion against God. We all deserve death and destruction. Yet God provides a way of escape through Christ to be our substitute so that you don't have to die, so that Christ can die in your place. You simply have to repent, believe in Christ. Say, my sin is not worth keeping me from Jesus. Trust only in him. So what about you, Christian? What drives your decisions for your family? Are you operating by faith in Christ, or are we still following our own eyes to the land that looks most prosperous and promising? Are we going to abide and integrate evil and sin into our lives because we think it makes our lives better, gives us a chance for success, even gives us a small amount of pleasure? That path leads to destruction. We might look at Lot and say, ah, well, he wasn't really a Christian. Second Peter calls him a righteous man who vexed his, his soul. And you know what? God saved him from Sodom. I think we have to say, because of those in Second Peter, I think we have to say that Lot was probably a follower of God who is in heaven one day, yet chose that path that led to earthly destruction. Do not think that we are above that. If we allow sin into our lives, if we say, well, I'm going to tolerate this in my life or in my family's life because, you know what, it brings me success or it brings me joy or it makes me happy, it will only lead to destruction. Are we willing to sacrifice our own rights for the gospel? Are we willing to sacrifice and give up our good American lives for the sake of others? And this is convicting to me as well, because I like my comfort as much as anybody. But are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of others? Are we willing to give up everything that we have for those in need in our church, for those that we can minister to? Parents, how about your children and their futures? I've seen this even in my young career. I've seen this many times already. Parents wanting their kids to go to church, wanting their kids to go to youth group, wanting their kids to stay in church. But if that child says, you know what? I want to go be a missionary or I want to go be a pastor or I want to serve God. I've seen good Christian parents say that is not allowed. That is not acceptable because I will not allow you to sacrifice your future, your career, your opportunity to make money for the Lord. If that's your attitude, then I would tell you, you do not have your eyes fixed on what is actually important. If we are not trusting in Christ, if we are not following him, if we do not have our eyes fixed on him, if we have been captured by the things of this life, of things of this world, we can repent. There is grace available. There is rest in Christ. There is contentment and peace and joy found in Jesus. And ironically, peace and joy is found in Christ by taking up our cross and dying daily. Dying to our own desires and our own ambitions and receiving life daily from him. Trust in God to keep his promises. Rest in Jesus and his faithful salvation. We must live by faith in our faithful God. We must keep our eyes fixed on our Savior, faith. Father, thank you for today.